right, good morning. You guys ready to get to work? Yeah. Revelation, we're starting today. Uh, you guys excited for this study? Some of you, some of you are, some of you are not. Uh, we sold out, we have um, the Revelation journal study, uh, uh, yeah, whatever that is. Brian's holding it up. It's on Resource Center, it's got the text and a blank page, it's journal. The scripture journals. Yeah, was, uh, we sold out last week. We have more there. Uh, so if you missed out on getting that and you want one, make sure you stop by Info Central to pick one of those up. Uh, we want your Bibles open. That's a helpful tool. It's better if it's in front of you and you're seeing it and following along than if we're just reading it to you. But if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn uh, to the book of Revelation. If you find the maps, you went too far. <laughs> but it is at the end. And we are, we are ready to get after this. There seems to be two kind of polarizing reactions to this letter. Like either some people just kind of cannonballed into this pool and they're excited and it's like you got the charts and you got the graphs and you think you got everything figured out and you're pumped about this and you listen to all the, the podcasts and blogs on all, all the end time stuff or you kind of dipped your toe and you found out how confusing this is and you're just like, I'll stick with the gospel so I can understand that. Um, but we're, as a church, we're both excited uh, and a little nervous uh, to do this study. Excited because it is the Word of God uh, and it has some amazing, glorious truths in it that we need to hear. Uh, a little nervous because it seems that there are a lot of people with uh, passionate viewpoints about this letter, uh, differing viewpoints about this letter. I'm sure this is going to be a series with tons of emails that I eagerly look forward to. Can't wait to hear from all of you on what we got right and wrong and have that conversation. Uh, if you want to get a faster reply, just email uh, Michael Rhodes at Veritas Church. <laughs> right on top of that. Uh, but there are. There's just a lot of just kind of different passionate viewpoints on this. Uh, and there's a lot of respectable different viewpoints on this. Where you look at good and godly people and trying to wrestle with the text. And like, okay, I can see how you got there. Or I can see how you got this. Um, and I'll just be upfront with you. Um, there are a diversity of interpretations of some of the passages that we'll look at in this study, even within our staff and elder team. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, none of this undermines the main point of the letter uh, or the gospel. Um, and there's some freedom in that. And we, as we teach through this, we're going to try the best as possible to present fairly um, some different perspectives through this letter uh, the best we can. And these are not issues to get bent out of shape about. Okay, can I just say that again? These are not issues to get so bent out of shape about. We can go to the text and we can have those conversations, um, but it's not a break of fellowship by any means. Um, but there also seems to be another group of people around uh, this letter or this topic of end times events that it's like, I don't know if you've actually read Revelation that much, but it seems like you've watched a lot of apocalyptic movies and maybe you've read the Left Behind series uh, and now you just watch a lot of news. And you are convinced that any politician you don't like is the Antichrist. And it's really clear that the locusts in here are tomahawk helicopters. And the mark of the beast is clearly the vaccine. And you are just kind of just really anxious and fearful of the end of the world uh, in a way that's like, I, I think it's good news. I think we can relax there. On this. It's good news. Uh, and you are waiting to be vanished away and just leave your clothes on a pile on the floor uh, in rescue. Now... I don't know if I told you this before, but I had a friend in college who kind of had an interesting roommate. Uh, and his roommate, he was coming back from class. He was going to his apartment. 
And his roommate heard him about to come in. He's like, I want to make him think that he missed the rapture. So he took off all his clothes and he jumped into the closet. And when my, my friend came into his apartment and he saw the pile of clothes in the middle of the floor, like any normal person, his first conclusion wasn't, I missed the rapture. He was like, my roommate's a slob and now he's naked in the closet, which was really awkward. Uh, but it's just gonna, it's weird stuff. Like, and if you're just not like, you have no church background and you just heard this story, you're just like, where am I right now? Like, this is, what is the rapture and why are people taking their clothes off? Like, this is a weird thing. Um, this is just the beginning. It's gonna get weirder. Like, especially if like you came to Christmas Eve and you're like, oh, I think I like this church. And you came back and like, this is your first uh, sermon series. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, <laughs> But you're going to deal with, like, the coming back of Jesus, angels and demons, dragons, you know, like, just kind of some really odd and difficult stuff. And this is a challenging book. And if you're doing your Bible reading plan, and whenever you kind of work through that, you love, like, the Gospels and the Epistles. You're like, let's stay there. But you struggle with Daniel and Zechariah uh, um, and Ezekiel. This is going to be a struggle. This book is, has the most Old Testament references than any other New Testament book. There's a lot of symbols and numbers and metaphors and visions. And I think, especially as Westerners, we can struggle approaching this book because we love to take things literally. And it's kind of how we're wired to the culture that we're in. And then you read a, a letter like this and you have to ask yourself, do we think Jesus literally had a sword coming out of his mouth or is that symbolic for something else? Do, do we think that Satan is literally a six-headed dragon? Or is that meant to kind of give us an image of something? Do we think the mark of the beast is literally a 666 tattoo on your forehead and your hand? Or is that supposed to symbolize something else? And we're going to have to wrestle through difficult texts like that. And not only do we take things literally, we also like things really linear. Like this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And that's kind of how things, that's how it works. That's how the world works. Well... Different cultures kind of function differently. And in this book, uh, recapitulation is used a lot, where it's kind of looking at the same event through different perspectives. Like, let's look at this event from here. Now I want to explain the same thing here. And now I'm going to explain the same thing in a different way, using different imagery. And it's, it's like, are you talking about the same thing, or are you talking about different things? And we've got to try to make sense of that. And you, Scripture uses that. Like, we see that and struggle with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Like, Genesis 1, you get in a creation, creation account. And then in Genesis 2, you get a different creation account. You're like, well, which one is it? He's like, yeah, it's both of them. From it's, it's the same creation, but you get a different look at it. And in the book of Revelation, you re just read through it. You kind of feel like, how many different times does the end of the world happen? Because I think it happened in chapter 6, and then chapter 11, chapter 16, and then chapter 20. Like, you just like, how, how many times does the end judgment happen? And it's challenging. It's challenging. We're going to have our tough text ahead of us. Um, but I want us... Uh, to take a deep breath. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is good things for the nourishment of our soul and really lean into it. And here's my warning. I think the real challenge is that we don't get lost in a few challenging passages and miss the main point, which is not confusing at all, but it's extremely important. So today we're just going to look at the first three verses of this book. And I want to kind of set the stage for our study um, that's going to be helpful throughout the rest of the book um, by posing a question 
that if we can hold on to the answer to this question, it'll serve as a good guide for the rest of the study. And the question is, why? Why do we get this revelation? Why do we get this letter? And when you get into something like this, we always want to jump to the what. What does this mean? And what is the dragon? And what is, what is this symbol? And what is that symbol? We want to get to what. But I think before we tackle those, we have to understand the why. And the why is going to guide us. Just it's like if you were uh, going into a, a cave and it's like it's dark in here. There's a lot of kind of offshoots and it's really easy to get lost. Let's just tie a rope around us so we can find our way back. We're going into a challenging book. There's a lot of kind of rabbit trails we can get into, a lot of questions that are going to be raised. But if we can kind of tether ourselves to the why that this book was written, it's going to help us not abandon the main point. So that's where we're going. You guys ready? All right. First three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near." Now, that's the introduction, and this introduction is, has some important information for us. One, we've got to know who wrote it, and John, the apostle, uh, is the author here. He wrote this. In fact, he uh, backs himself up with some credibility. This is John who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. This is the John that's with Jesus. Uh, and then further down in verse 9, he says, I, John... Your brother and partner in the tribulation, like I'm in this struggle with you, this uh, difficult time, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is writing this. Uh, He's writing it from an island of Patmos. Now, Patmos was a Roman prison island. They had some mines to work in there, but you kind of got sent there. Like, this is Alcatraz for Rome. They would send them to to Patmos. And history suggests this. We don't know for sure, um, but history suggests that John was arrested in Ephesus, uh, and they tried to kill him by boiling him alive in a vat of oil. Uh, And they were unsuccessful. Now, I don't know if they were unsuccessful because God miraculously saved his life or it was just kind of a botched execution that he didn't die in. Well, either way, they send him off to finish the rest of his days on this prison island of Patmos uh, where he gets this vision and he writes this letter uh, and his audience is the churches, or these seven churches in Asia, these fellow Christians in this area going through these circumstances. In fact, in verse 4, John says to, to John to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's his audience. So this letter is meant to be circulated to a bunch of Christians living uh, in Asia under the Roman rule during the same time of heavy uh, persecution for Christians. Now, if we're uh, if you grew up in America, you have, have this lens on in which you see Christianity. You think of Christianity as being the people who are the majority uh, and are in power. And there's been a season uh, in America where we've experienced, whether it's genuine Christianity or just cultural Christianity with some uh, messed up theology, and depending on the demographic of who you are and what you think you experience, that America's kind of experienced 
uh, some Christian virtues being lived out in some ways. But that's just not true the rest of the world or the rest of history. Like if you're a Christian, there's a long heritage of uh, persecution and oppression. Like we're not been in the majority, but as Americans, we don't we tend to not to connect those dots. In fact, uh, a lot of sociologists would say that America is now uh, entering a post-Christian stage. Uh, we're a post-Christian nation. Like what does uh, America look like? Kind of leaving and being more secularized, kind of abandoning some morals that were supported by uh, mainline religions. And we're saying, okay, this is a different place. In fact, I just read this past week that there was a, a man who was in the Mall of America in Minneapolis who was wearing a Jesus Save shirt that says Jesus is the only way. And he was asked to take it off or leave the mall. He couldn't be in the mall. Now, we hear that story and we're like, no, he couldn't. Like, how could he? Because we're used to certain freedoms that we're supposed to be allotted. But from a Christian perspective, the, the sediment in the Bible is, yeah, that's par for the course. Uh, Peter says, don't think it's strange when you face all kind of fiery trials. Like, we follow somebody who was executed. <laughs> Join the club. If they killed our leader, what do you think they're going to do to you? But it's just really strange for us. But this is the audience he's writing to. They're facing tremendous amount of persecution. So when Christianity first came on the scene, it's like, we're trying to figure this out. Like, who is this rabbi? He's doing some pretty wild things. He's getting quite a following. Uh, he's upsetting the Jewish leaders that can upset kind of the, the balance of power in Rome over these places. So we need to deal away with this. So how do we squash this thing? Let's just squash it quick and easy. Kill the leader. How'd that work out? Yeah, not good. That's the resurrection implication, right? Um, so it did not work out. Uh, Jesus raises from the dead. The Christian movement continues to thrive and continues to grow. Um, and in 65 AD, Nero, who was Caesar, ramped up public government-sponsored persecution. You could be thrown in prison if you were a Christian. Um, you were thrown, fed to animals, Colosseum for being a Christian. Uh, famous stories of Nero had this kind of uh, big garden that he would take Christians and tie them to poles and douse them with oil and light them on fire to light up his garden at night for being a Christian. Um, this was John's situation. John says he's in Patmos, and why is he? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's my crime. I got sent to Patmos because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It was the situation that he was in. It was the situation of the people he's writing to. And that was in 65 AD. And then in 70 AD, it really ramps up. 70 AD is a, a tough year. 70 AD was the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, people living there had enough of the taxation and the imperialism. So they revolted with some short-lived success until Rome sent reinforcements. And they just ransacked the city, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, massacred a ton of people. Like, this will shut them up. Uh, that same year, Paul... Uh, Peter and Timothy are publicly executed. Now, can you imagine? The news headline is not just man wearing Christian t-shirt says he can't shop here, but man wearing Christian t-shirt was dragged out to the parking lot and shot. Can you imagine if, if the leaders, the Christian leaders in our nation, the headlines were, um, you know, this church was raided and Tony Evans and John Piper were captured today and they are in prison awaiting their execution. Can you imagine if those were our headlines? How would you handle that? Rome is coming down hard. 
um, and they're trying to squash it. Uh, Domitian is the next Caesar, and he makes an order for uh, emperor worship. Now, this was a practice that was already happening, but he really doubles down uh, making Christians do it. Jewish people kind of have an exemption, like you kind of got grafted into this. We honor your religion. We don't know about these weird Christians. So you have to say that Caesar is Lord and recognize his deity. What do Christians say? Who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. Huge political statement in Rome at that time. They're standing strong for Jesus. Well, that get them in trouble. Like, can you imagine living in a situation where going to school, going to any sporting event, I don't know, you'd have to pledge allegiance. But maybe not to one nation under God, but one nation under Caesar, or under some president, or under some other person, and recognize their supreme power and authority. How would you handle that? Rome is trying to, through laws, through propaganda, through persecution, aggressively stomp out Christianity. I mean, think about think about being a Christian in that context. Like, if, if my employer find out found out my beliefs, I think I'd lose my job. I could go to prison. If I keep kind of pressing this issue and bringing up Jesus to my coworkers. I may get arrested and killed and made an example of. Can you imagine being in that situation? The pressure to quit, to give in, and to compromise was really high to the audience of John, who he's writing to. Really high. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like when it comes to following Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus, you just like, I want to quit. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Or at least can I compromise I'll hold on to my Jesus, but also embrace, uh, sure, Caesar is Lord. Fine, I'll do both. Just don't fire me, right? Or I'll just give in. Or just, you, ever, you ever feel that way? Now, I pose that question, and based on your personality or maybe your age, you might be like, no, let's fight, right? And maybe your enthusiasm is more patriotic than faithful to Christ. Well, how do you feel? Is there a temptation to compromise? Perhaps, let me just talk to the younger people in this room. How does it feel to go to school every week and be taught and pushed a sexual ethic that is contrary to the word of God? And you feel that if you disagree with that, your peers and a lot of your teachers would look at you like you're a bigot and an ignorant person. And the temptation just to be like, can I just comp? Sure. No, I'm not one of those Christians. Can I just compromise a little bit? Can I just give in? Can I just modify my faith a little bit? This is the audience John is writing to, and they were under extreme amount of pressure to compromise. And he writes in this letter. And guys, we can't forget that this is a letter to real people going through real stuff. And we can't just treat it like it's some document to study. This is a letter it was written to a specific group of people at a specific time in a specific context. They were dealing with specific problems, and it had meaning to them. And hear me now. It can't mean something for us it didn't mean to them. You with me? It can't mean something to us it didn't mean to them. So as we study this letter, we have to try to discover what was the author's intended meaning to his intended audience. And then we have to navigate what does that mean for us. But also in the introduction, John tells us that it is the 
revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that word revelation is where we get our word apocalypse. And we've heard of the apocalypse, right? You've watched apocalyptic movies. It's the end of the world. The sky is falling. Uh, it's over. Like, we know, we know what apocalypse is. Well, apocalyptic literature... Uh, What's common, and besides being kind of weird, if you ever read any, there's a lot of symbols, a lot of imagery here. Same in this book, um, but this is from God. We'll get to that in a little bit. But apocalyptic literature, uh, it deals with what will take place at the end of history. That's the point of apocalyptic literature. So he's saying this is dealing with what will take place at the end of history. But in verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So a prophecy... Or prophetic literature deals with what will take place um, in the flow of history. So apocalyptic literature, what's going to take place at the end of history. This is what uh, is involved in, in this book. But also this book is prophetic. It's going to deal with what takes place in the flow of history leading up to the end. And it's a letter to real people. So on one hand, you kind of get this. It's a letter, much like the epistles with an introduction, an audience. It kind of follows a flow, good conclusion. But it's also apocalyptic, dealing with the end times. But it's also prophetic, dealing with history leading up to the end times. So it's a lot kind of balled into one. And John makes it really clear that what's said in this letter has divine authority. Look at all three verses again. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants... The things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed is the one who hears and who keeps what is written in it. So he's saying, notice all the parties involved first. You have God the Father giving a message to Jesus the Son, who gives it to angels, who angels deliver it to John, whose John's deliver it to the churches. So he's like, I'm telling you how I got this message. And the point John is making is, you really need to lean in on this. I'm not just making this up. This is from God. God has delivered this from his throne to his son, to his angels, to me, to you. Like that's kind of the the flow that that you follow here. And he's saying, take this seriously. This is for you. This is apocalyptic about the end of time. This is prophetic about events leading up to this. And it's a letter written to you of a divine authority to a group of persecuted Christians. Now back to our question. Why? Why do we get this? Why did he give this to us? Why did he write this to these seven churches? Why do we have it in our study today? What's the purpose? What's the point? Look at verse 3. What's that first word? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. This is meant to be a blessing. This was meant to be a blessing for those persecuted believers. This is meant to be a blessing for us. If you keep reading, we'll get into these verses next week. But it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from you. There's an intention of grace and peace through what's going to be said. He said, from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth to him who, what? Loves us. As weird and scary and confusing as some of the parts of this book, what we can never forget is this was given to us by somebody who loves us. 
and it's meant to be a blessing. You're like, well, how? How is this supposed to bless people who are under such extreme persecution for their beliefs? In what way is this a blessing? Imagine you were watching a movie with your young son or daughter. Um, I'll give a a gender-neutral name so it can apply either way. Let's say Johnny. Um, (laughs) And she's young. She's five. She's five at the time. I mean, hypothetically, this could be anybody. Um, And mom is gone, uh, so you want to pick a movie you want to watch. And I wanted to watch The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So that's like right in the middle of the epic battle. <clears throat> oh, you'll love it. You'll love it. It's great. Hypothetically. Boy, girl, him, her, anybody. Couldn't. Like, it was great. Let's watch this movie together. And it's right in the middle of this epic battle where so much drama and so much conflict and so much horror is happening. And uh, she is it's getting a little too much. And you feel like Aragon, like he's the hero and he falls off a cliff. Like, no, dad, he can't die, right? And like, Aragon won't die. I mean, he doesn't really die, right? And then Sam and Frodo are, 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 are split up from the main group and it's not looking good for them, right? And they're going in all this kind of, right? And, and the, the orc army is marching on Helm's Deep and they got an army that's way scary and outnumbered. And like, this seems to be the end and it's just getting overwhelming and she's asking questions. He's not really dead, dad, right? He can't die. They wouldn't have the hero die, would they? And as a father, he's watching the movie, you just want to say, watch the movie, right? There's a let it play out here. Um, But it is, uh, she's getting so distraught and scared. And she wants to shut it off, but doesn't really want to shut it off. So I pause it. And I put her on my lap. And I say, Johnny, or whoever. (laughs) Aragon doesn't die. No, he, he comes back. That, like at just the right time. Like you think it's all lost and the, all the orcs are like surrounding the, the, and you just think no hope is lost. He shows up. And, and help comes. Gandalf shows up again with, with a, like an army and they come riding down. Oh, and Sam and Frodo, it's going to get worse for them. It, I mean, it's tough. They, they're going to go through some stuff, but they're going to be fine. In fact, they end up getting through Mordor and destroying the ring and destroying evil, and they get picked up by these eagles. They get a riding eagle, and there's like this epic party where Aragon is kind of united with his elf wife. It's romantic too. Like, you'll love this. In fact, everybody kind of bows down to these hobbits as this kind of, these victors in this whole battle. This is awesome. So you want to keep watching? Yeah, okay. And now she's ready to enjoy the movie. That's what this is. I'm so overwhelmed with persecution. I'm so exhausted. I don't want to go on anymore. This is scary. I don't get it. How could this happen? Our leader can't die. Why would they kill Paul? How do you let Paul die? I don't like this. What's going on? God's like, no, no, no. Let me let you in on something. Let me let you how this plays out. Because you, you could look at all the words of this prophecy and sum them up this way. God wins. God wins. 
There's, there's a moment in the story where you think the hero's dead. Nah, he's not dead. He's coming back. Right? You look to the east. He's coming. Like, and he will be victorious, and he will be united with his bride. Oh, it's going to be awesome. It'll be awesome. And the humble will receive a crown. Oh, this is good. Like, God rules even in our evil day. He does not forsake his people. He will triumph. Guys, this is a prophet. Hear me now. This is a prophetic message with a very practical purpose. This is a prophetic message with a very practical purpose. This is meant to encourage faithfulness in the face of persecution. A bunch of persecuted believers that want to quit. That's who John's writing to. And this is meant to encourage faithfulness in the face of that persecution. God is like, hey, hey, you're feeling this pressure to quit and compromise. God is like, hey, before you make that decision, before you shut that movie off, can I just tell you how it plays out? Because those people you think are in charge, yeah, they're not really in charge. I'm in charge. Those people that are oppressing you, let me tell you their end. Those people that stay faithful to me, let, let me tell you their end. Let me tell you how this goes. And for you today, if you're feeling tempted to compromise, just fit in with the world before you make that decision, can I just, can I just tell you how this ends? Can I just tell you how this plays out? That the people you think are having so much fun, it doesn't end well. And God is in charge. Judgment does happen. Justice does rain down. The righteous and the faithful are rewarded. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. That word hear doesn't just mean to like audibly hear it. It means to heed it. Like blessed is the one who heeds this, who takes it to heart, who believes it and embraces it. It will be for your good. It will be to your blessing. How so? It's going to give you strength when you just want to quit. It's going to give you strength when you feel like you're outnumbered. It's going to give you perspective that kind of fuels your faithfulness. So here's what I want you to remember if you're a note taker. God reveals his future victory for our present faithfulness. That's the why. That's the reason behind this. God reveals his future victory for the reason or because for our future or our present faithfulness. That's the point. That's the point we can't lose. We need to keep that in mind throughout our study. We need to kind of live with the end in mind. It's why we've been let in on it. So that we would stay faithful. So that we wouldn't compromise. So that we wouldn't quit. We need to be shaped now by that. The way we live. Because listen, I want you to hear this. If we are not being shaped by the, the future truths that are laid out in this prophecy then most likely we're probably being shaped by the present lies laid out in our world, right? We think people who will eventually lose are winning. And we're tempted to draw into it. We're tempted to compromise. We're tempted to fit in. We're tempted to just want to be liked. It reminds me of Psalm 73. Psalm 73 Um, The psalmist says this at the beginning. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's what he's saying. I know God's good, and I'm trying to be a good follower of God. But when I look out at this world, and I see the arrogant, and I see the wicked prosper, I'm going to just be honest, I'm jealous. I want to have the fun they seem to be having. I want the toys they seem to have. I want to live the way that they live. And I'm just, I'm just jealous. God, why is this? I know you're good, but I feel like the losers are winning here. And I want to be on the winning team. And I'm struggling. But then you kind of keep reading the psalm, and it gets to verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a, weary, seemed to me a wearisome task. Like it's hard to figure out. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And after I kind of discerned how it ended for them, I was like, oh no, I don't want to be them. I don't want to be them at all. I want to be faithful to you. But you've got to live with the end in mind. This letter of Revelation gives us the end in mind, it gives us the end for our mind to fuel our actions. So as we go through this book, I don't, I don't want us to forget the main point, that it would fuel our comfort and our courage to stay faithful to him. When we feel outnumbered, when we feel like the world is so broken and sinful and it's winning, it would comfort us with the truth. It's, no, they're not winning. I'm on the throne, and this is how it plays out. And we'd be comforted. And we would be encouraged or fueled with more courage with the same truth. God wins. So don't cave. Don't give in. Don't be so soft. Don't be a coward. You see how this plays out? Be on this side. Stay faithful to this God. You know, one of the things I love about this book um, is it can seem like the expression, I'm not saying Christianity, but the expression of Christianity in the American church particularly can be pretty girly or feminine. I'm not saying there's like feminine, beautiful things when it comes to the gospel. But when it comes to the method of the American church, it can often seem like pretty girly. If we're going um, gonna to sing songs, but I don't know if they're like epic praise songs that kind of like Jesus is my boyfriend song. And then there's this feeling like, hey, let's, let's do discipleship, but it involves getting coffee. And you're just going to talk about our feelings. And I don't care what you think about like The fact is the American church for a long time has struggled reaching men. But you get to this book and it's like, we're slaying dragons. There's like bloody warfare. And the message is, buck up. Don't be a coward. Don't cave to this. Buck up. Be faithful. You may die. Yeah, you may. But it's worth it. And I'm telling you, men, if we would lean in with some passion to be strong and courageous for the Lord, our church would come alive in new ways. Any ladies want to amen that one? Like, men, if you would just come alive with a passion to be faithful and courageous and stand up against the evil of this world and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, we will come alive in new ways. And we need, to, we need to learn to lean into that. 
to be okay not fitting in, to have, have courage to be different. L- listen, the impact, this is important, the impact that Christians have had when they are faithful in the face of persecution is always stronger than the impact they've had when everything is going okay. When everything's just kind of culturally fine, no problems. Like the impact Christians have when things aren't going well is always stronger. Look back at uh, Matthew 5, just given the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he said. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were with you before. Like, if you're facing persecution on my account, you're in good company, right? So, so rejoice in that. But then there's an unfortunate uh, heading break in the text that I think disconnects something that's supposed to be together. The very next line in the section is, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand that gives light to all, the, all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good work and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Those two things go together. He's saying, hey, you who are persecuted for my name's sake, you people revile you, and yet you still remain faithful. You know what you are? You're salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You who stand up to persecution, when the world is doing this, like everybody, everybody's wearing this. Everybody's talking like this. Everybody's watching this. Everybody does this. But you don't, and you're faithful, salt. Light. That's what it means. But if you're not, you're not salty. Then what good are you? Like who lights the lamp and puts it under a bucket? So you, you claim the name of Christ, but you don't follow him and you just cave to this world? You're not salty. But people that do, people that are willing to be faithful in the face of persecution... I'm going to flavor the world with those people. I'm going to light this world up with those people. That's what he's saying. So you know that description I gave you earlier about the persecution these believers were facing in Rome? That they were being fed to lions? That they were being publicly executed? That they were being tied to a stake, doused with oil and lit on fire to light somebody's garden up? That type of persecution? Well, by the 4th century, the early 4th century, the number of Christians in Rome that confessed Jesus as Lord, by the most conservative estimates, are in the millions. Maybe even as high as over 50% of the Roman population. You were like, how'd that happen? If you're getting tied to a stake, doused with oil, and lit on fire, I don't think people are lining up to join that party. So how did that happen? How did you go from this small, minority, persecuted group of people to over millions, millions of of followers in a persecuted context? How did that happen? Faithful Christians who are said, I'll die for Jesus. Light it up. Let's do it. I know how the story ends. So let's go. And the impact that faithful Christians had in the face of persecution. Christians in China 
multiplied from under 2 million believers to perhaps 30 times that number after or during four decades of intense persecution and torture and martyrdom of their leaders. How did that happen? Christians in China, there's like, kill me. I'm with Jesus. Oh, you tell me I can't spread the gospel? Yeah, I'm going to spread the gospel. Faithfulness, no matter what. Guys, Christianity does not need democracy. Christianity needs courageous, faithful followers of Jesus. In Nepal, in 1960, there were just 25 baptized believers. But within 25 years, that number multiplied over 1,000 times over. During a time, listen to me, during a time when Christians faced a six-year prison sentence for baptizing other people. It was that time, it's like, oh, you want to baptize somebody? It's going to be six years in prison. Fine with that? Show me the water. Let's do this, right? If I'm in prison, all I got is a drinking fountain. I'll go Presbyterian. We'll do it. We'll drink it. Let's get it on. Like, there's a certain, like, I don't care. I'm with Jesus, and there's nothing you can do to make me waver. I know how it ends. I know how it ends. And we're worried about others that might think we're a little weird. Maybe we could use some courage. Persecution has always been a catalyst for the spread of the gospel and the thriving of the church. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid if society changes. Don't back down. We know how it ends. We know who wins. Have courage. And as we heed the words of this book, I pray that we would find that courage. That would be true of the people of Veritas. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I do pray, just as we go through this study, that it would be a blessing, that we would be blessed. We'd find comfort in these words. When we feel outnumbered, when we feel exhausted, when we feel like compromising, we would take comfort knowing that you're victorious. And it would just fuel our faithfulness. I pray that we would be blessed with courage, that we would not back down, knowing on whose team we are on. And I pray that we would not fear your coming. We would not fear your second coming because of what you accomplished the first time you came. You didn't come as a lion, you came as a lamb. And you were sacrificed. Your body was broken, your blood was shed. And you accomplished for us the forgiveness of our sins and adopted us into your family declared us righteous so we can with anticipation not fear look forward to your return look forward to your coming look forward to the lion the conquering lion of Judah to ride in bring judgment and make all things new because of the cross we are right with you I pray that we'd be a group of people that highly anticipate your return knowing we're forgiven. We love you. We pray in your name.